Hey guys, this is Emmett. Welcome to your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today is a lucky day. I'm here with fellow Johnny, Joseph Keegan, who's written a sharp-ass article in Tablet Magazine about how wokeness really, really, in ways that we haven't acknowledged, come out of Unitarian Universalism. So thanks for being here, man. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for having me. This is, this is going to be a blast, I think. Yeah. So before we get into the um, article, I was wondering if you'd sort of like introduce yourself to the audience a little bit. Like, how did you come to this article? Like, how did you come to this perspective? Like, what's going on with you? Yeah, man, that's a long and tangled story. So I think that by, by explaining the origins of the article, I can explain the origins of myself a little bit. I, the, the article itself came out of, um, I was writing, I started working on this piece about like, so my, my background is kind of, you know, I spent a couple of years as like an anarchist, you know, doing like street protests and, you know, environmental, uh, environmental activism, semantic globalization activism stuff. But I was like, you know, five years in the anarchist trenches or so. And uh, it was a thing that like, you know, really mattered to me for a period of time. And then after a while, kind of washed out of it, wound up somewhere else. And, you know, I spend a lot of time reflecting on that thing. And, and, and lately I've been, I've been really struck by how so much of the stuff that's become culturally hegemonic, right. This, the, you know, these, this kind of obsession with like sexual etiquette, you know, like certain types of like novel, new sort of moral doctrines, so on and so forth, like all really resemble some of the stuff that I encountered in the anarchist milieu. And in particular were things that kind of came in toward the end of my time there and just like screwed everything up really badly. So I was working on this piece kind of about how identity politics flooded into like the anarchist milieu in ways that were kind of understandable and then ways that were extremely aggressive and not understandable. And ultimately what it did was just kind of just ruin everything and like make, and basically like there's not much of an anarchist milieu anymore in America for better or for worse. And it has a lot to do with like you know, a bunch of the stuff that is now culturally hegemonic, becoming really vogue among anarchists, and they all hated each other and were incapable of talking to each other. So while I was working on this piece, I was I, I rediscovered a couple of issues of the Earth First Journal from like the early 2000s. It was the the organ of this environment, you know, radical environmental organization called Earth First, famous for kind of staging these big spectacular protests about things. And for a while, they popularized sort of like monkey wrenching machinery, uh, but they moved away from that. And the Earth First Journal. I remember when this happened, they published this big thing on one of their pages. It was like a full page, like uh, dossier that was their anti-oppression statement. That's what they called it at the time was anti-oppression. And I remember when this, when this came out and when this kind of term started circulating in the, in these, in, in the, in this movement. And then like a little while after that, this other anarchist organization, Crime Think published a very similar thing about, you know, their, their commitment to anti-oppression. And these are like, these are organizations like the earth first journal would publish like uh, report backs from people who had like done some kind of crazy infrastructure protest somewhere. And they, you know, they're like the, you know, they're, they're, they're basically like, like, you know, anarchist poetry, you know, it's like, like, like these screeds of like anarchist romantic poetry. Like there were five of us, you know, we marched up to the dam and under mm-hmm. cover of night and yada, yada, yada. And yeah. here they are publishing like, you know, we at the Earth First Journal, you know, commit to, you know, this this anti-oppression, you know, doctrine, bullet point one. And like, 
I remember just being really struck by the strangeness of how kind of like official and bureaucratic the whole thing was. Especially then, if anybody who's read Crime Think stuff, right? Because, or, you know, because since they did a similar thing, like I remember buying Crime Think books at like small punk rock indie bookstores and being like, maybe I should drop out of high school and hop on a railroad car. Like I live by a train line. Like I could probably do that. Like maybe I'm betraying my true self and the human spirit by doing my homework and like waking up on time. Like maybe I should smoke rollies and do whatever. And like, that's because it was really a very, I will say like moving romantic thing about individual independence and refusing to submit or participate in the way society was currently structured. That's not necessarily what sounds like it's happening with these dossiers. No, 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 not at all. I mean, it's, you know, it's probably for, for better that it didn't inspire you to do the thing that I did, which was actually go and ride the freight trains and so on and so forth. But, but yeah, so like there's a, there's a point in like the early 2000s when all of a sudden all of these anarchist groups are publishing anti-oppression documents. And I started doing some research. I was like, who's the first person to use this term anti-oppression? Like, where did this word come from and how did it get sort of received into the anarchist world? And the earliest thing that I was able to find that used this term was a, it was a, a publication from the Unitarian Universalist like Youth Association from like 1996. And I've never found anything earlier than this particular thing. And so I sort of hit that. That was like a, I felt like I kind of tapped into a seam and I was like, oh goodness. Yeah. Now that I think about it, when I was in the anarchist world, there were all of these people that I would encounter who had these backgrounds in the UU. And like, they were all extremely dogmatic about political correctness. And they were like, impossible to talk to most of the time. And like, really <laughs> sensitive. And, yeah. you know, oftentimes kind of nice, but like, you know, in a, in a, but like, you, you know, you sort of take the wrong step, and they freak out. And I was like, wow, okay, hold on a second. And I started kind of like digging down into this stuff. And then, and, and so I was already kind of doing that research. And then I, a friend actually pointed out to me, that that beacon beacon press which you know i've like you know read books from beacon forever yes yeah, is and they, they published not only white fragility but a handful of these other kind of like you know racial etiquette manuals that have come out over the last year that beacon press is a fully owned subsidiary it's like owned and operated by the unitarian Universalist association like 100 and it has been since its inception and so i just had this moment where i was like hold on a second like like there's something here right like there, there's something something Unitarian is going on. And I wanted to figure out what it was. Yeah. I mean that, I think to me, that's sort of what's missing from a lot of the wokeness as religion thing is that then you touch on this in the article, right? Is that I don't think people understand that like a lot of times when you go to divinity school, you're really getting like a weird political philosophy degree where sometimes you study the Bible and it is, adamantly left-wing from what I've seen and experienced. And it produces people who, even if they go on to be Baptist ministers or whatever, are basically Unitarian Universalists. Yeah. I, I'm not sure how this functions in like lots of like sort of seminaries that are like explicitly affiliated with a certain type of denomination or something, but definitely like, I mean, the Harvard, it seems to me like the Harvard Divinity School set the tone and kind of established, you know, the, the terms for like this thing that's a divinity school distinct from a seminary. And Harvard was a Unitarian project from its very founding, right? It was a place to train Unitarian ministers. And so like, mm -hmm. you know, for, 
you know, I, and, and I don't know to what extent that you can impute a causal thing. I mean, I'm still trying to figure that out, but it definitely does seem to be the case that like the spirit that reigns at Harvard is the spirit that reigns at the University of Chicago Divinity School is probably the spirit that reigns at like a handful of other of these divinity schools that are not seminaries. And they all basically have the same kind of project and attitude with, re- with regard to like Christianity or with regard to religion at all, right? That it's all kind of untrue. And at best, it's a vehicle for social progress. And you really, if you believe it too much, you're doing something a little bit icky, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I had this moment where in like 2015, my general like co-hosts for some of our episodes, both Canada, Mike and John were like, you need to become Catholic again because you might like drink again or kill yourself. And I was like, okay, (laughs) I'm in enough pain that I'll do whatever you say. (laughs) My two Muslim friends are telling me I have to go to mass on Sunday. I guess I'll go. And at the same time, I was sort of having this, I'm sure, annoying to my fellow parishioners because being me, I got over-involved in things to try and solve my own problems. But I also became friends with this guy who is part of the Protestant clergy that was showing up to the same political events as me. And he had gone to, I think, one of the div schools in New York and studied under Cornell West. Cornell West was his thesis advisor. And that was like my real introduction to what we've ended up calling wokeness. It wasn't called that at the time. You know, I think people forget that like when that phrase started to come out, it was used like it was hard to tell whether it was being used seriously. Sometimes Mm -hmm. people would use it to like lampoon stuff that was going within the left and other people were using it like quite sincerely, like stay woke, man. And that was like a front row seat to how that happened. And I bring this up only to say, I remember having this conversation with uh, him about the Holy Trinity. And I was like, well, yeah, like if I'm Catholic, that's like that's the fucking deal, man. (laughs) Like it's like, it has to be real. Otherwise, like, why would I go? Like, it's not the same thing. He was just like, he's like, I don't know if it's real or I've just benefited from the privileges that it affords me as a man. So good. And I was like, okay. I was like, sure. Like you could say something about like misogyny that exists in the church that absolutely exists for more than one reason. You know, like I remember a former monk friend of mine said that the Catholic church is filled with a bunch of priests with mommy issues and nuns who like really wish they'd gotten married. And so the toxic dynamic that unfolds in a power structure is like really brutal emotionally in some way. So I was like, okay, if we were talking about that or like general stuff in society, I could see But then I was just like, yeah, but like, wouldn't it just be whether or not it was convenient for you, it would just be like fucking theologically true. (laughs) Like, isn't that the more important thing where we're talking about like matters of faith and however that works out? Like, you don't want to say, I want this political world. And so God should look like this, right? Like if you want to do the political theology and that's something that you identified here that like Carl Schmitt points out that all modern political ideas are secularized theology and they sort of flip that around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like <clears throat> I'm an Episcopalian, right? Like I, I'm, in, I, 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 I'm at home in like this totally sort of normie, like liberal Christian denomination. Totally. You know, I don't feel, too, yeah, I don't feel too like conflicted about it most of the time. Like, you know, there are people who are doing really earnest faith there and I really love it, you know, and the people just showing you, up because it's what they do. I mean, it's a faith community, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Like, like, in, like any other one, but like, 
you know, you, you encounter this occasionally, right? I mean, like we unfortunately had the influence of Bishop John Shelby Spong, who I think in many ways was like sort of spiritually Unitarian or something, right? Like he tried to, he, he sort of demanded this like, you know, new reformation, which was basically like ditch everything that, that makes Christianity, Christianity, and make it something that looks basically identical to the Unitarian Universalism. And he spent his entire life in the American Episcopal Church in more or less good standing and like retired as a bishop. It's very depressing. But but you encounter this kind of thing every so often, right? Where like there is a stream of this, you know, in 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 the part of Christendom I live in, and like, you know, where people will want to like break apart the theology because it it seems a little too icky with regard to like the the right things you're supposed to think in society today, right? Like uh, one of the things I always I I always hear kind of behind me in the pews, right? Is you know we use the 1979 prayer book. It's a lovely. The language is very lovely, and you know when referring to God, a lot of people will or you know it'll say He in the prayer book, right? Sure. Like you know like just you know we're talking about God, right? That's a language that has been used for thousands of years, and you'll hear people behind like in in, in an effort to avoid the pronoun will say. God. It is right to give God thanks and praise rather than it is right to give him thanks and praise. And, mm-hmm. and there's some stuff like that. It's a little, it's corny, not my favorite thing. There are worse things, but, but definitely like, you know, you'll, you'll have, you'll encounter stuff like this from, it's mostly from people who have studied religion in a college, right? This is, yes. and I think this is the thing that you're sort of pointing out is like, this is a like distinctly kind of academic approach to religion that seems to pretty much be everywhere. And all of the people who are kind of the craziest that I've talked to who've drifted into my church are like religion students from different places who are just totally bananas. Yeah, exactly. Like I remember, you know, I mean, I haven't been to mass and I can't tell you how long my wife is Jewish and non-practicing, you know, I still go to 12 step meetings or whatever. That's basically my spiritual contact, you know, but I believe in God and I pray. Right. But being Amen. In, yeah, exactly. Right. But sort of like, how would I put this? Having gone through that experience of like, I mean, I consider AA, you know, some sort of faith community because it has to be right. Even if it's like you could be, believe in whatever and show up is that it doesn't really need to be academic the way they think it needs to be like quote unquote effective or to be a community where like love and fellowship exist. But what's weird is that like a, the academic scrim becomes the only way to view that as the possible way to achieve that type of community is like through this really intense, like rectification of names (laughs) to conform to the present at all times. Yeah, like all of the language has to be the language of liberalism. I mean, there's there's this amazing letter that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote back to his supervisor uh, after visiting Union Theological Seminary in New York in like you know the early 1900s or whatever. And he says, I don't I don't remember the exact thing, but he said something like, you know, everybody will use all of the all of the you know the the, the new language of humanitarianism here, but nobody will talk about the crucifixion. Nobody will talk about you know the incarnation, right? And then. And that really feels like the spirit of American Protestantism today in many ways, but only right. Only at the academic level, if you sort of dig down and actually talk to, you know, like normal people in Presbyterian churches or whatever, we're like more, you know, more or less willing to just like talk to you about God. It's really lovely. And one thing I'll say, right. So the Unitarian article, you know, I, I was trying to pick out a sort of specific thing that I felt like the Unitarian, the Unitarian association, I should be specific because it's not a church 
like the Episcopal churches, it doesn't have the same kind of, you know, like nationally organized body. It's like a loose association of individual parishes. The thing I was trying to pick out that that frustrated me so much about, about what they do is that they take a lot of things that are like interesting questions and things to be sort of thought about seriously and philosophically. And they sort of extinguish the possibility of thinking and of debating and of sort of discussing these things by producing a bunch of like study guides and like bulleted lists about, you know, the things that are true about like everything from like gender to race to like international, like economic policy. And there's just something I find really distasteful about that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's not as if they feel like they're contributing to a discourse that, you know, they're not, they think of themselves as being liberal in a certain way, but but I really think that like, you know, that there is a, there's a tendency with, within the UU association, right. They, they produce all of these things and then they kind of give it the imprimatur of being like the settled kind of like religious answer to certain societal questions on the flip side though. And I got a number of emails from people who reminded me of this and I, I I take it very seriously. Yeah. You know, it, it seems like there are, and as right again, and as much as it's like a loose loose association of little of little parishes kind of scattered around, like there are a lot of Unitarian congregations or who, that, that that basically I think seem to be something like an AA chapter for a lot of people, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it gives you a sort of ritual in life. You show up, you talk about things that matter to you with other people that are kind of like minded. You know, they don't do this kind of crazy book stuff apparently. And I've learned since I since I wrote the piece, a couple of people sent me really kind emails. It's basically saying, well, you're right about a certain tendency within the, within the UU association, but there's this other tendency actually, where like a number of people on the inside have been trying to sort of nudge them away from this obsession with like woke doctrines, which is really interesting to me. And I'm, I'm curious to see how it goes from there. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's rare that you're going to find in any community, like absolute unanimity. Like that's just never how that goes. So it's, it's cool that there is this pushback, but it made me think, right? Like you and Wesley Yang today, I think we're talking about that uh, NYT article about the downfall of Antioch from 2007, which is the year I started at a different Slack Bennington. And I remember talking about the downfall of Antioch while we were there and you brought out a certain teased out a certain element of it, which is that, the argument that I can't remember the author makes is that, of course, it became easier to have this type of ideological hegemony as the campus got smaller. Yeah. And then I thought about it and I was like, well, yeah, like if you have, by the way, that guy that I was talking about in Brattleboro went to Union. That's, oh, that, wow. that's where it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, that's what it was called. But these are small things where it is easy to create that type of uh, lockdown over debate. And so it creates, can create people who can replicate that experience wherever they go. And in talking to my friend, default friend or Catherine D, whatever Mm -hmm. she wants to go by, I've realized that that's also sort of how it ends up working in like fandom spaces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
No, her you know. project of exploring that is super interesting. And yeah, like the, the the influence of kind of this this ideological homogenization that happens in like Tumblr universe or like fan fiction or whatever. I remember watching some of that stuff unfold when I was like first kind of getting online in like the 20, 2010s or something like that after having sort of been an anarcho-primitivist for a number of years before that. Mm-hmm. And it was deeply insane. <laughs> I mean, and it kind of remains deeply insane, you know, and the, I don't know, I think that like the, the, the fruits that that hath wrought are pretty easily visible on things like TikTok. Yeah. You know? Which like my, my nieces are really into TikTok and it's, it's like melting their brains. And I, I worry about them all the time. Right. I mean, I worry about that in a different way too. And I think people think that you're like a, an old codger for critiquing it, but like, I'm also very ambivalent about the way in which my brain has been contoured by my own online experience. It's not as if I believe that everything I engaged with was okay and a healthy thing for me to be doing and that I, you know, no life is perfect, right? So I'm not making that Mm -hmm. argument either, but like, I think we're right to be concerned. I think the other thing that I couldn't stop thinking about was the nature of the soul mm-hmm. and how it all fits into this. And here's what I mean by that. And I'm just really sort of thinking out loud. Maybe you can help me here. It seems as if identity groups, this is especially true when it comes to certain boutique gender and sexuality things and like neo pronouns and stuff like that seem to be a conception of inherentness and an essential self that functions much like the soul, except in an entirely secularized way. And that is, I don't think we should take that lightly because the idea of the soul is and always has been incredibly potent and powerful in terms of how it has shaped our engagement with the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I love talking about the soul and I love talking about personality, right? The sort of strange, the, the strange, mm-hmm. irreducible mystery of, a, of the human person, right? These are things that are like really important to me. I, you know, I, so I'm, I'm starting a PhD at Tulane University in philosophy next year. And I, I, was, oh, I was speaking with Ron. Thank you. Rana Berger, who teaches there, she's like an, you know, she specializes in, in ancient Greek philosophy. She had this, this marvelous little thing that she said, I think, and it, it was this book that was like conversations with Seth Benardetti, the like bizarre mm-hmm sort of singular, you know, broad-minded Plato scholar, where she said something like, you know, people these days are trying to figure out themselves. And when, and the, but the, all the language they have to like, to, to identify themselves are, is the language of group belonging. And so they're trying to discuss their particularity, but they're always pointing to like, to like group labels. Right. And, and there's, there's kind of a category error that happens where if, if all that you're able to say about yourself is that you belong to this group, this group, this group, this group, and this group, well, you've not really said anything about yourself and yourself is sort of lost, right? And you find, mm-hmm. and, and you find yourself struggling to figure out how to speak about you in any coherent way at all. I think the opposite thing is also true that it's possible that people can be far too solipsistic and have only a language of the self without talking about sort of the way that you sort of interact with communities that are kind of outside of you that you belong to sure. so on and so forth. But, but definitely, yeah. I mean, I think that like both of those problems are, are solved or at least helped immensely by just talking about the soul. It's, it's both, right. It's both particular to me and it's universal to all of us. So it's, it's a perfect thing to solve the problem. Right. Right. And I mean, I think, yeah, 
some interesting challenges arrive, right? Like I, I like the idea of what you were saying, reporting that, that Ronna Berger had said, because it's sort of like it's uh, patterned but uncultivated is how I would think about it, right? Like that's what you end up with. It's like you're perfect for a consumer demographic, but not necessarily for like living and breathing in the world. And yeah. I think one thing um, that might arise as a challenge to that is to say like what if this is the conversation of the soul as it exists right now as a conversation and that people are doing that even if they don't know they're doing that right to me i think that what's interesting about the sort of algorithmicized experience of these is that it frustrates dialectic in the socratic sense right so if i'm reading plato one of the things that's amazing is usually someone is trying to find the truth and another person is trying not to be wrong. And those aren't necessarily the same project. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And it is that it's sort of those things like grinding together that create either aporia or some sort of revelation. But the way that the algorithm works and the way the non frictive nature of being online gets rid of the sort of intimate middle ground that dialectic requires, right? It is not, in fact, um, going down to the Piraeus one day. Yeah, my good friend Everett Reed always likes to remind me about this line from Gillian Rose, the, the Hegel and Adorno scholar. She has this thing about the need to repair the broken middle is this thing that she's always mm. talking about, right? That there's something, there's something lost in the world and the sort of urgent task is to try to knit that thing back together. I haven't read the book, but he'll send me like a beautiful quote every so often whenever I'm sort of like talking about the incommensurability of groups of people or about the gap that exists between everything. He's like, no, 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 no. It's about repairing the broken middle. It's it's a thing that is, is reparable. So like, remember that. And yeah, I think that, I mean, I think you might be right about sort of gender and category talk being being an attempt at sort of soul talk. And I take it really seriously for that reason. Like people are trying to figure out who they are and, and that's not a process to be disparaged whatsoever, but. No, not um, at all. It should be encouraged actually. Absolutely. Yeah, encouraged. Especially in the young. And this is one of the things that frustrates me a lot about kind of like a right-wing responses to this stuff is just like, it doesn't take seriously that like, yeah, exactly. That young people are really trying to figure something out, but they've just been poorly equipped for the task, right? Which is something we've talked about on the show is that this is a multi-generational problem, right? That seems to get handed down with bigger gaps in between guidance than the last time it's been received. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's a problem that's been like unraveling for like several generations. And we are just as much inheritors of it as uh, as the generation that's younger than us, right? Another, another, another per, not to just constantly send out a flurry of names, but like I, I read a lot of Hannah Arendt and, you know, and, and her, her take on it is like, we're, we're in a place like we're, the tradition is broken, right? Like we, there's no continuity anymore between us and whatever came before that, that we can simply receive if there is to be something like a tradition, we have to work really hard to recover it kind of all the time. It, it's, it's, it's a matter of like effort and engagement. It's, you know, it, it, I don't know. It, and a lot of that effort, I think, is going to feel kind of thankless and not be especially fun. Yeah. But, you know, it, it'll hopefully be, be somewhat rewarding. You know, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to say something about Antioch, right? Because I'm, I'm really interested, you know, I, I love that Wes shared that piece. And I, I really, I thought it was like a really great little exploration of this very strange place. 
and thinking about it and thinking about like, you know, you mentioned earlier, but we we're talking before that, like, you know, the, the common core program comes out of Bennington, right? Mm-hmm. There's like this one little place that makes this thing that takes over everything. Yes. And the strangeness of that kind of transmission of like novel sort of cultural forms, some of which are like become, you know, inscribed into law or like become sort of like, you know, forced features of the world and not just accidents. Like part of what interested me about, about the Unitarians is like, there's a little bit of sort of causality that you can trace, right? You can say, okay, you know, Beacon Press is, is, is an arm of the Unitarian Universal Association and they clearly seem to print things that kind of, they, well, they print a lot of stuff, right? A huge amount of things, but, but they also print things that seem to kind of like match whatever their mission is in a given age. And it seems like the anti-racism stuff is kind of their thing right now. So there was mm-hmm. something sort of Unitarian about white fragility and about like, and they took it on for that reason, I think. But then there's a whole lot of other stuff. Like it's, it's not like Robin D'Angelo made the age that we live in. She's popular because the book that she wrote happened to kind of match the tenor of things, right? Right. If anything, she's almost like a Johnny come lately in terms of how she's blown up. It just happened to be right place, right time. I mean, that's really all you can exactly. hope for if you're publishing a book. Yeah. And, and like the, and the same goes for like Antioch. I mean, Antioch had like their version of the common core that they produce that gets, that gets um, sent everywhere is their sexual assault policy, which mm-hmm. if you've moved in any sort of like far left-wing spaces at any point over the last 20 or 30 years, the Antioch sexual assault thing is like everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, they wrote it for their campus and then somehow it gets exported all over the world. And then like major, like, you know, like elite prestigious universities in America that that don't ever think about Antioch College are, are like enshrining in their, like, like their HR protocols. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Their HR department is, is like making these, these sexual assault policies that are identical to Antioch colleges and they don't really know it. And nor do they know the genealogy of these things, but somehow like Antioch threw something out into the world and it's just like getting received kind of everywhere. And, and, I don't know that that process really, really intrigues me a lot. Like the strange tangled journey of like uh, cultural transmission. It's very weird. I think that there's, so I think there might be like a few things going on when I think, obviously I don't have to answer God, but what if I could, right? (laughs) But when I'm taking a look at this and, and thinking about what you've said, I think part of it is sort of the, you know, this is like Taleb stuff, the power of a fervent minority, you know, can Mm -hmm. really change the course of things. So it's that obviously there's like a class component. It's like, where do these people end up? They end up as mid or higher in institutions, right? Because they're coming out of these slacks and stuff. And then to me, it's like a path dependency, right? So I was thinking about this in terms of, I haven't followed up on it, but there was somebody who was writing on, for the American conservative, they were sort of doing a look at the DSA's attempt to do some like rent regulation stuff in like Washington DC or something like that, or in like New York. And they were like, they were very, they were lauding them in some ways. This conservative was, they were like, this is a real problem. They thought that they could fix it. They made some mistakes. Let's take a look at those mistakes. We need to start learning from them because like, this is a real issue that they nailed on here. He goes, so they have to talk to all of these people and they have to figure out how to work with the community they're not part of. Well, all of these people were trained up by the Bernie campaign to knock on doors. 
So how did they try to solve this problem? By knocking on more doors than anybody else. Was that effective? It ended up not being, you know, mm -hmm. and that's not a knock on them per se, but that's sort of what I mean when I'm talking about the path dependency of being someone who comes up in that sort of institution and then ends up in a middle to higher management level in another one. You're going to take the mm -hmm. tool that you're most versed in. And lots of times, those are going to be the tools that were given you at very impressionable ages. Yeah. And in a lot of these, you know, like Antioch, for instance, right? I mean, I thought that article did a marvelous job of just showing that like that the the tool that it seemed to give people after at a certain point in the 1970s was just being completely insane, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. like, you know, uh, being like drug addicted and like making totally rash, chaotic decisions. And like anybody with like half a brain fled the institution and it went bankrupt. I, here's a fun story for you. When I was at Bennington, somebody talked about going on a tour at Antioch and walking into their student commons editor and two people were just chopping up lines on a cafeteria table in broad fucking daylight on their college tour. Was, was this pre or post bankruptcy? Do you remember? This was, right, that, this was like right before. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's, so here's another sort of crazy tangled thing, right? Mark Roosevelt, who's the president of St. John Santa Fe was the guy who brought Antioch out of uh, bankruptcy. Yep. I was there when, I was there when he showed up at Santa Fe. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. I remember when that happened and like, you know, there was always, there was this question of like, you know, is Antioch the kind of thing we should, we should bring out of bankruptcy, you know, like <laughs> maybe, maybe it's yeah. good that it's gone. You know, that was sort of, that was seriously flowed. I mean, I've known, I've known a lot of people over, you know, like before it went, before it went bankrupt and I, I knew a bunch of, I, like I knew a guy who taught there after it came out of bankruptcy and really enjoyed his job, but mm -hmm. um, unfortunately got laid off because of the, the uh, COVID sort of economic contraction. But yeah, I mean, like there, there were, you know, these weird, like Antioch is really strange because I, the, the sense that I get is that like before it went insane, it was a thing kind of like evergreen or like, you know, yeah. Any of these liberal arts colleges in like Vermont or, or like, mm -hmm. you know, like Oberlin or something, it was like a school started by an idealistic founder that had like a really specific kind of pedagogic, like sort of progressive pedagogical thing it was trying to do and, you know, produce serious students. So like if you look on their, if you look on the Wikipedia page of like, you know, the people who graduated from Annie, there were like loads of really interesting people who were there from like the 1930s to the 1960s. Yeah. Like novelists and statesmen and, and scientists and stuff. And then there's a very clear drop off in the, in the like the mid to late 1970s, because again, anybody who has sense wouldn't, couldn't stick around in this kind of crazy place. Right. And I don't know, it, I, I, there's a sad thing of like, you know, and I think to some extent, this is sort of what's going on in, 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 a, in a thing like the UU, right. That it is a, it's an institution that is, that is like built in for a kind of progressivism, right. It's, mm -hmm. it's, but it, you know, it, at its best, it's kind of a it's kind of, it has this kind of democratic vision of like you know a kind of radical democratic participation by everybody involved. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone's got a say in the way the institution is run. You can vote on things, you can pass things, you can start little initiatives. It's a case of both Antioch and at the UU, but that kind of thing leaves institutions very vulnerable to completely insane people. And right, yeah, and and they don't have any safeguards for like what happens when you get a total lunatic who gets a, you know, a position of power in one of these little, you know, organizations that sort of helps steer the institution. And uh, suddenly they're, they're like a little tyrant and nobody wants to go there anymore because they ob obviously this person is too crazy. And the only people who are willing to be around are people who really like this person. And so 
all of a sudden your thing is emptied out except for being sort of run by the craziest. Mm-hmm. And just like, it's yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's interesting so much of uh, what's happening now with what has come out of these institutions feels like the revenge of the progressive movement of the late 19th, early 20th century. Because if we take a look at who's publishing at Beacon Press in the early 1900s, it's guys like John Dewey, who goes on to found my alma mater, co-found, I should say, Bennington, right? All these people, these like charismatic progressive founders or whatever, all sort of in the same circle getting published by the same places. And it's obviously not like one-to-one, like of course they churn this out, but that's what's so interesting about the circuitousness of this route you know, is that there's like this weird time delay. It's like a refounding of the initial premise, right? Except it has, in the meantime, brought with it all this sedimentation from the eras that have existed in the interim. So the the Dewey of today would be like an Ibram Kendi or something where like all the same people are publishing them or? Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I think I think that's very, would very much be the case, right? And we could say that this thought is impoverished even from John Dewey. Right, which I think yeah, it yeah. could demonstrably be shown, and yet here we are, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think you know. I think about that a lot. Right. I have a lot of sympathy for the kind of like turn of the century progressive idealism. Like same, and looking yeah. at the problems they were looking at, I have oh, huge, yeah. as you bring up in your article, respect for uh, the people who really put their money where their mouth was in the UU during the civil rights era. Yeah, you know, there were like. Couple- a couple That's of like incredibly commendable. There were some UU ministers who like like were killed. Like there, there was a UU congregation in Jackson, Mississippi that was like the only like you know religious institution in the entire state that was willing to like allow black people to come into it. That yeah. wasn't like just a black church, and they were harassed mercilessly. And I think that like one of the ministers ended up getting shot. Like they marched yeah. in Selma. I mean that stuff like that matters, and I think it's really beautiful, and I think it's it's. You know, there was a, they demonstrated their courage at a time when it really mattered. And likewise, I mean, you know, yeah, guys like Dewey, I mean, I have a huge respect and fondness for like Mortimer Adler being another one of these kind Absolutely. of progressive yeah, educational reformer guys. But like, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the question stands, right? Like they put a huge amount of effort into like shaking things up, into changing kind of the course of what education looked like in America and to what extent is what we're dealing with sort of like the unanticipated fruit of what they were doing. However, however noble or good their, their, their intentions, right. I, 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 which I think in many ways are unimpeachable. I worry about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, because when we take a look at, like, I don't want to be too cavalier and saying, well, obviously this was all bullshit and it was always going to lead here. That would imply that I have somehow resolved the problem between industrialization, like financialization, and democracy and education, right? Like, mm-hmm. obviously, <laughs> they were engaging with real problems that endure and permutate over time right? Like they weren't doing their shit for no reason. But what I think is so strange now is that it is a tradition without a tradition. Like it's not aware of itself as having these founders as its roots. That's what's so surprising to me is that rarely is there a callback. Like I could not find a selected John Dewey until last year when one came out. Yeah. 
right? Like this yeah, guy the, had a huge impact on American political life for decades. And it was like, yeah. he was a ghost. Like there are all these people from the liberal era of like the new deal in the early 1900s that are lost to time, but have this like shadow influence that exists mostly in the zeal of their progeny. Yeah. Yeah. They, they left behind. Yeah. The zeal of their progeny, a bunch of little things that they made that nobody remembers why they were made. And then like, I know like for Dewey specifically there, there are like a number, you know, like university of Oregon's philosophy department is really invested in Dewey as a pragmatist or something. And so you have like kind of narrow academic study of some of these people, but then others of them are, yeah. I mean like a guy like Mortimer Adler, for instance, right. He was hugely important in like American culture as such for a long time, right? He, he gave us the great book series and he was like, you know, a, a really important figure in shaping the, the uh, core curriculum at the University of Chicago. He was friends with all the people at St. John's College and, and, you know, was like informing them for like what kinds of things should happen over there. And and, and, and to say, like, I, I host seminars at online great books. And the first thing we have the students read is Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book. Good. Rightly so. That's, that's, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah, no, I, I, I want there to be more, more engagement with him because he was, I mean, he was like a, he was a, a thinking man who, who like had a really beautiful vision of what the, the tradition of, of, you know, and, and deposit of sort of thought and letters that, that we're sort of left with is for, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, he, he engaged with it really deeply and beautifully and it's, it's worth looking at, but you know, I, 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 I don't know what to do with, with a guy like, I, I mean, like a guy like Dewey, for instance, right. He can be, he can be like a, remembered as a philosopher now right mm-hmm. so he was a whole bunch of things and one of the things that he did was that he would he sort of wrote books on, about pragmatic philosophy mm-hmm. and because of that he can his memory can live on in the philosophy department the university of oregon or like emory university or whatever and he can now be kind of a philosopher even though when he was alive he was like way more than that and he mm-hmm. was like doing all kinds of other things that that weren't directly related to his books on on pragmatism yeah. But a guy like a guy like Adler, I don't know, like what 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 kind of I mean, beyond sort of like having people read him for these for these like great books initiatives, which I think is a really marvelous thing. Like what kind of cultural memory can a dude like him have? Right. Yeah. I have no idea. No, I mean, that's what's so interesting about like watching what goes out of print. I mean, that's what John and I have found so fascinating about reading some of Lash's deeper cuts is that oh, yeah. he does a lot of that reading, you know, where he remembers the names that have been half forgotten and like figures out what role they played and wh- how that leads up till now, you know? So I think that there's still like work to be done there, but this goes back to the conversation we were having about Arendt and the idea of tradition in general is that what we're living through now seems so decoupled from a sense of the past. And that's what's fascinating about the sort of secularized or theologized secularism of uh, liberal UUs who are extremely woke is that it does have somehow the fervor of the progressive era, but also it's pragmatism because like Mm -hmm. that is how it manages to disconnect itself from the religious traditions that it could ostensibly be considered a part of. Yeah. And then it 
puts all that religiosity onto something else. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is, here, here's the thing I regularly think all the time. I mean, I, I was at the, I was, you know, just spent a couple of days at the national conservatism conference in, in Orlando. And I think that like, I get the sense that moving moving in some, uh, there are some dimension of these seemingly opposed worlds, right. The world of a kind, the kind of like, you know, like edgy based right-wing thing, which you know, there are, there, you know, there are very intelligent expositors of ideas that move in that world. And I'm not really mm-hmm. talking about them. I'm talking about like sort of hangers on that move around in the, the run of the and mill. Yeah. The run of the mill. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I talked to a couple of, a couple of like students that were at this event that I think kind of fit into that category. And then, you know, yeah, you're, you're sort of like, you know, progressive, like, you know, D'Angelo Kendi kind of, kind of like thing that ultimately are kind of identical in function right that they both mm-hmm. recognize a, like like a profound loss of something however sort of like inchoate that feeling is like they they, they feel a kind of loss the the sort of based right wing trad thing is to like is to like project that onto a certain canon right you pick up dante or you pick up Aristotle or Plato or whatever, maybe you get into Schmidt or Strauss or whatever, mm-hmm. right? You sort of build a canon that kind of matches that thing. And then the the progressive version is to do kind of the same thing and build a build a canon out of Ibram Candy, Robin D'Angelo, Taylor Lorenz, or you know, like just kind of like random sort of like lib friendly progressive things. But I but I think in function, they're both basically the same. And I have like a huge sympathy for that kind of thing because like understood rightly, it's like a response to this kind of brokenness. It's a, it's a response to a kind of historical disjuncture and like a, and like a loss of grounding. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I remember talking to one of the tutors at St. John's who older man, he'd been there forever, like almost since the Santa Fe campus had been created. Right. And just casual conversation in the coffee shop, right. On campus. I'm like, well, what have you noticed? You know, what's changed? And he was like, all of you are rootless and none of you know it. And it gets worse every single year. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that was, beautiful. that was his response. And I was just kind of like, cool, man. I don't have a follow-up for that. So <laughs> I go back to my room now and stare at the wall, you know? But I think that is the, I mean, that's so much of what we explore on exhaust. Yeah. It's like the sense of yeah, like yeah. somehow not having any coherent account of how we got here. Yeah, I'm I'm not even really like against you know, I'm not like against it or something. Like I and I'm not sure that the, what that guy said was an insult, right? He's no, like, he wasn't he, it- he wasn't deriding them. He said it with profound yeah. concern. He was yeah. worried. He was worried for his students. It was with great love. It's a careful observation. And and I you know, I and I think that's sort of like step one is to know that. And yeah. and to like and to not forget it, right? Like I think it's one thing to, to be, to have that impulse and say, all right, you know, I am modern. I have, I have Mm -hmm. been totally decoupled from any sort of inherited past. I am fully thrown into having to do this kind of crazy act of Mm self-creation. Like uh, step one is to say, okay, this is what I am. And I think like step two is like to not, not pretend like you can really get out of it. I mean, like I, I, I tend to think that like, this is sort of our, our lot in life. And mm-hmm. rather than, rather than like, this is one of the things that really sort of bothers me about like the sort of reactionary position 
And I, I imagine that there are probably a few people who are really able to like, to like get out of it by living an entirely different way somehow. Like you just, you go out and you, you have no internet and you submerge yourself in stacks of books and you attend the same, you know, like Catholic parish for 25 years or whatever. And like, you'll sort of like, you know, inhabit these patterns that sort of get you out of, out of like being a modern subject or something. But like, I really think that like the, I don't know, like I, I, I want to, I want to do this kind of thing. I, I, I want to, you know, if I, if I'm going to be doomed to being a modern subject, mm-hmm. I want to find other people who are likewise doomed, who are, and who recognize that we're likewise doomed and learn how to do it well together or something. <laughs> right. That's yeah. Communal like Nietzscheanism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, I always say like, you know, the, the, if, if I have something like a political project, it's just to make a more elaborate and comfortable shanty town for the politically homeless. And I feel like sort of expanded from that. It's like to make a more kind of like elaborate and comfortable sort of and, and deep and rewarding world for we moderns or whatever, right? Like mm-hmm. we're all we're we're all in this together, as they say. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I wonder about that, right? Like there seems to be with some of the trad stuff this idea that it's just like it's the denial of the Nietzschean event. It's like that never happened, yeah. right? <laughs> but what the problem was is we took a wrong turn back there. Not that the road ended, right? And if we just stop, if we just stop reading Nietzsche. If we say really mean things about Nietzsche on Twitter, then we can yeah. really get out of the problem. Right. It's a sort of like whistling in the dark, right? Like yeah. that's to to keep your fears at bay. And yeah, I mean, I have, it's interesting what you say about how like, you know, to be doomed together. I mean, I think about this uh, all the time when I'm doing leading seminars for online great books, right? Like I had this moment I think one or two years into leading seminars where I realized like, wait, this tradition is going to survive this. Like what we're doing is stewarding something right now that will survive whatever this interregnum is. Right. And in that moment, I like didn't necessarily step out of being modern, but it's like I repaired that middle that you were talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Where I was like, because some of these people are mechanics who've never finished a book in their lives. And then the first book they actually finish finish is the Iliad, right? And then they like go in order. It's crazy to watch happen. Dude, that's beautiful. And, and, you know, and and it, 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 it should be said that what makes this kind of thing possible is something like the internet. Right? Yeah, absolutely. That, it wouldn't that, like it's run on a Slack channel and Zoom. That's it. Yeah. That's the business. It's I mean, I yeah, I, I think that like there are lots of like kind of these too easy just so stories that people tell about like, you know, liquid modernity and and you know, everything's dying and being disintegrated. And like, yeah, you know, like we live in an extremely tumultuous time and things are changing at, at, at a rapid clip. Lots of bad things like lots of bad things happen kind of all the time. Yeah. High but, uh, entropy threshold. Yeah. 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 But you know, like I, 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 my life has been, has been enriched immensely by the internet, right? Like I, I'm glad to be able to talk to you because Likewise, of this. Yeah. And I've, I've met an enormous amount of other like extremely kind hearted, 
you know, wonderful people who have, some of whom have become like actually really good friends, some of whom are sort of constant interlocutors all through this kind of thing. And, and I feel thankful for it all the time. I tried my best to recognize its dangers while I'm in, while I'm doing it, you know, and, and to remember that like the real world is really important. That's, mm-hmm. you know, that like the emb- embodied existence is like true. <laughs> we have to actually <laughs> exist exist in like, in like a place at a time, like in, but I'm not sure that like the internet as such is the problem. And uh, it, I don't know, it just, and, and especially hearing stories like that. I mean, that's, that's an, that's an incredible story. And I hope that like, I hope that far more of that kind of thing happens. Me too. And I think it is, you know, like I want to get Michael Millerman on here to see if I can talk about what it means to steward the tradition outside of institutions. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a conversation that we should have, not just because it's like the thing we should do. I don't think the Academy's dying tomorrow. Right. And I'm also yeah. because I went to St. John's, I understand that not all of it is totally avoiding this tradition. Right. The Western yeah. tradition of thought. So, okay, that's fine. But now there is a whole field of pedagogical experience that exists, whether the university system engages with it or not. Yeah. And this project needs to exist there too. I mean, dude, you're, you're an old punk rock guy like me, right? Like, have you ever read this book? Our band could be your life by <laughs> Michael Azarad. Buddy, don't you know it? Don't you know it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you, you know that, you know, like it's like the chapter two, it's about the Minutemen, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and it's like these, these kids, these like working class kids from San Diego, California. And they're like listening to like, you know, kiss and like twisted sister records. And they're saying, man, I love rock. I love rock and roll. This stuff kicks so much ass and I will never be able to do this because mm-hmm. the, the, the record labels are too big and, and the, you know, they have to have so much money. And so they like track down some like trashy guitars and drums and they start a punk rock band and they like make possible something that wasn't possible in the world before. It's mm-hmm. like their vernacular version of rock and roll that they wanted to do, but like felt like they couldn't. And then what comes out of that? Like, more and more people like like they hop in a van with black flag they tour around the country showing other people that it's possible to do this kind of thing and then like you have like you know this blossoming of you know american like 80s and 90s diy punk rock which like was an entire world i mean it's it's when i i i had a friend tell me recently that you know one of the things that robert putnam overlooks in like bowling alone and writing about social capital is the rise of punk rock which was social capital it was the rebirth of social capital yeah, in america in like dying old cities and they just did that by sheer pluck and passion and like you know picking up an instrument and just freaking doing it and like why not why not take that as our model for what like learning and thinking and rebuilding the tradition looks like Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I was, I love that you brought that up. Right. I always think about when, um, in Henry Rollins get in the van, he's talking about meeting with, uh, mugger, the, the roadie. And he said, he writes, I asked him stupid questions like, when do we get a day off? And when do we get to eat? And every time mugger would just laugh at him and say, this isn't Van Halen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man. You know, and like, that's, I mean, I think that those of us who sort of came in through that, especially at the juncture that we did, right? Like, I feel grateful. I don't want to say that I'm like perfectly prepared to pull off whatever insane passion project of stewarding the Western canon has become. But you probably remember this too, is that first you would get into like some big mainstream punk band, right? 
And then you'd start seeing which other kids at your school or your neighborhood or whatever were into that. And then somebody would have like a cool older sibling who like knew the DJ at the college station or whatever. And they'd be like, oh, but have you heard the dead Kennedys? And you'd mm-hmm. be like, holy shit. And then you would learn by reading liner notes and hanging out with older yeah, kids yeah, yeah. and spending time, like the whole genealogy and history of everything that happened to lead to the present moment. Like you could walk it back to like the Ramones and the Sex Pistols first show and like how many bands come out of that, right? Like that, like it is going through rock encyclopedias as a music obsessed punk rock kid that taught me what a canon was. Yeah. Like that was the experience of hanging out in record shops, of being like, this record is the record that changed everything. Who is in this band? Like I, at one point I had in my iTunes library liner notes for every single album in it that went into like who the drum tech was on which Megadeth albums. Like (laughs) that's incredible. That's incredible. No, like if you really think about it, like I learned what a bibliography was when I was like, you know, nine years old looking at the like thank yous in like, yeah. like, like a CD booklet that I bought, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and then you would, you would, you would memorize those band names. You'd go to the store the next time and you'd buy those CDs at a whim. Yeah. You know, this, this, this isn't Van Halen, the, 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 maybe the watchword for whatever this sort of like, you know, tradition rebuilding sort of like philosophy enterprise is like, the St. Harvard or whatever, like this, the St. Yeah. Yale. <laughs> yeah, man. It's not, it's not a fucking country club. It's not Yale. It's not Harvard. There are no frats. There are no sororities, right? Like yeah. you, you're just doing it live, right? Like yeah. even, even though it was like the, the, this isn't Van Halen. I always loved what David Lee Roth used to say. And he used to say like, if you can't do it in a, in a dark room with nothing but a bear bulb, then you can't do it. There you go. And I was like, hell yeah, dude. There you go. <laughs> like, that is exactly how this is. So maybe we should add it there on a positive aging punkist. And yep. yeah, man, thanks so much for coming on. I hope we get an excuse to do it again sometime soon. Yeah, this is an absolute blast, man. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to the next time. Let's do it. All right. Well, stay safe out there, guys. We'll see you next week. Well